Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new, my name is Kurt. It's great to have you here as part of the Crosswinds family. And you've come on a very special morning for Crosswinds Church. Because today we are teaching the last message in the book of Genesis. Gee. Well, yeah, I'm like, I'm like you, Jim. It's like, a, it's like a cheer that we're done with this. 51 messages in this series. But also, it's actually, quite honestly, it's a lot of sadness. Because I've really enjoyed following this book through. And I, just to tell you, the reason we taught through it is the most important Bible book to understand so you can understand the rest, is the book of Genesis. It tells us of where the pro our problem comes from with sin. It tells us of God's great promise of Jesus and how God is faithful to His promises through the lives of His patriarchs. And so this is a wonderful book, and I'm sad to see it go, but it's also going to be good to be God. Sort of combination there, just a long series. Just to tell you uh, what else is going next, by the way, next week, Pastor Stephen is going to be teaching. He blesses our students each week on Wednesday night, and he's going to have a chance to bless us, which is actually sort of cool because it means that I'll actually be able to stay the, to the end of the OABCIG wrestling tournament. So for the first time in seven years, I'll be able to watch the finals on Saturday night and not have to come back and prepare to preach. After that, uh, we're going to start into the book of 1 Timothy. The subtitle of that series is called, What is the Church? And the answer essentially is this from the book, The Church is the Pillar and Foundation of Truth in Our Society. And so we're going to learn a lot about what it means to be the church and how to live as the church in 1 Timothy. And it's going to be about 12 messages in that series, six chapters, about half a, half a chapter a week as we work through that book. Now, before we jump into this final chapter, Genesis chapter 50, let me set the stage from Genesis chapter 49, where we left off last week. Last week, we saw that uh, Jacob was 147 years old. I mean, there is dirt and there is Jacob. They're both about the same age. He's like one of the oldest living things on the planet at this time. He is getting ready to die and so he calls in his sons, he has 12 of them, and he gives them each a blessing before he dies. And what was sort of a shocker for some of us is we think, okay, it's a blessing. He's going to say, oh, you guys are all wonderful, hope everything turns out great. That's not what he does. In fact, some of these blessings are just straight out rebukes to his sons for how they lived. The first son, his oldest son, a guy named Reuben, just gets scorched. I mean, but Reuben, even though he's set up to be the leader of the family, he's set up to receive a double inheritance, Jacob says, you are a man with absolutely no self-control and no discipline in your life. You are as unstable as water. And he is particularly undisciplined in the area of sexual self-control. The guy does not restrain himself whatsoever. This is in the Bible, by the way. We talked about it last week. Some, looking in your faces, you don't believe it. It's in there. And 
what he has done, in fact, this is the epitome of his out-of-control sexual nature, is he even had sex with his stepmom. You know, the, someone he shouldn't even be close to. Like, what are you doing? So, on his deathbed, Jacob says, no inheritance for you, buddy. You're rejected. You're not the leader of the family. Now, if Reuben was out of control in his sexual life, his next two brothers, Simeon and Levi, they are out of control when it comes to managing their anger. These guys are the kind of guys, you look at them funny across the room, they just walk up and punch you in the nose drawing blood. That's what these guys are like. Uh, they, for fun, they do cruelty to animals. Like, they like to watch things die and suffer. You don't believe it? Go back to Genesis 49. They hamstring oxen, it says, so they can watch them slowly die. Really messed up guys. And it's outside of the fact that later on in biblical history, there's some redemptive value with Levi that goes on. They become the Levites. Pretty much, um, Jacob just scorches them and says, you know, no inheritance for you guys either. And what we learned from these first three sons was this. That you know what? When it comes to how we live our lives, we will suffer consequences for our, action, for our actions. And those consequences aren't just for us, but they will extend into, the, into our children's lives, into our children's children's lives for generations to come. I mean, you just can't miss it. It's just right there in the text. When we sin, we will suffer. And so will our children because of it. But all is not lost. There is another son, the fourth son down the line. His name was Judah. And he was headed in the same direction as his three older brothers. The guy was a complete basket case. He leaves home marries a pagan wife who is completely far from God, has three sons through her. Those guys are way off the deep end. In fact, the first two of them are so wicked that God strikes them dead. You know, when God is striking your sons dead because of how they leave, you got have an F in parenting class. Big time. Now, Judah, you know, he ends up sleeping with prostitutes ends up sleeping with a prostitute that turns out to be his daughter-in-law. Ends up conceiving his own grandchildren. I mean, that's just creepy. But here's the difference. At the bottom of his life, when he seems like he's made a complete hash of everything, he, in humility, he repents and he seeks God's grace. And this is where the story turns for him. He goes from being far to, at, from home, going back to living at home. He goes from being far from his family to reconnecting with his family. And later on in the story, when the brothers go to Egypt, and Benjamin is accused by Joseph of stealing his cup, and Benjamin would have to become a slave in the dungeon, Judah puts his own life on the line and says, let me be his slave in his place, willing to like die in Benjamin's place, sort of like Jesus dies in our place, complete and total change of direction in Judah's life. And God pours incredible grace into Judah's life. And he goes from having a broken life to having a beautiful life.
He goes from being an outsider in the family to being one of the leaders in the family. In fact, when God chose what son of Jacob he would send his own son through, it was through Judah, the one who had received God's grace. The Jesus, God's grace, would come through Judah because he is the man who is the poster child of having received God's grace and going from a broken life to a beautiful life, all for God's honor and glory. Amen? Amen. So that's where we left off last week. Uh, now, we pick up this week. We are in the tail end of Genesis chapter 49. Jacob has just finished blessing all of his sons, and some of those blessings are harsh, and that's where we pick up. And what we're going to find in the final chapter are two funerals and how jo Joseph gets beyond a difficult time in his life. What we're going to find is how to live and how to die by faith. Beginning in chapter 49, verse 28. And these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah, who was one of Jacob's wives. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and he wept over him, and he kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. So that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Now it's interesting because as you look through the Bible, you find more space is given to Jacob's death than anyone else in the Bible barring Jesus Christ. This means that Jacob was an incredibly important man. I also want you to notice right before he died, he made, he insisted on something. He insisted to his sons that he is not buried in the land of Egypt where they all reside, but that he would be buried in the land of Canaan in the family burial plot that was originally bought by Abraham. Very important, he says, whatever you do, Make sure I am buried in the promised land. You guys got that straight? Okay, Dad. All right, I'm dead. That's essentially what it is. Final words to make sure you understood. Now, I want to make a couple observations from this. First thing I want you to notice, that it is clear in this text that when the body dies, the spirit continues to live on. 
we see that the body dies, and Jacob's body is embalmed, or if some text would say mummified. But twice in this text, Jacob the person, it says, is gathered to his people. Jacob the person continues to live after death. Now, the, if you look at the broad scope of the Bible, what we find is this. That everyone or lives after their body dies. They are either living in a place of torment or they're living in a place of joy. They're either with Jesus or they're apart from Jesus. But when you die, no one ceases to exist. All that ceases to function is your body, but your spirit continues to live on. Now, I call Jacob the Old Testament Christian. Because an Old Testament Christian is somebody who is looking forward in anticipation of Christ's coming. The seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15, who would eventually crush the head of Satan, would come. That's Jacob. We're New Testament Christians. We look back upon Jesus having come. And our eternity always depends upon Jesus. Either in the Old Testament you're looking forward to His coming, in faith anticipating His arrival, or in the New Testament we're looking back upon His coming and placing our faith in Him for our sins. Now I want you to notice this when you go to Matthew 22, 31 through 32. These are Jesus' words about Jacob. It says, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus says, because in the Old Testament, it's a present tense verb, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that they are just as much alive today as they were the day they walked the earth. We always go on living after death. The second thing I want you to notice is Joseph's response to his father's dying. Remember when he was 130 and they came into Egypt 17 years before, they were sort of surprised that Jacob was still alive then. So they've been anticipating this funeral for, for a long time. Yet, when Jacob dies, Joseph's response is brokenness and weeping. Sometimes when somebody dies in their old age, we say, well, you know, they lived a good life, things were fine, and there's not much weeping. Especially as Christians, we, we go to the New Testament, we know what Paul says, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is better by far. And sometimes in funerals, we're so excited to say, you know what, those who have died, our relatives, are now with Jesus Christ, and that's wonderful, and it certainly is. We're thankful that they're with Jesus, and we almost make it like a total celebration, completely devoid of weeping and brokenness. But I need to say to you that this scripture sort of rebuked me this week. That death is still an enemy. Death is still bad. Does Jesus snatch victory in the face of death? Yes, and we celebrate that. But we still mourn and grieve when someone dies. And sin has another casualty. 
Joseph wept for his father when he died, even though he was 147 years old. Jesus wept when Lazarus died, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Only hours later, as Christians, when you go to a funeral of a loved one, it is good to grieve. It is healthy to grieve. We should grieve but we don't grieve without hope because death is an enemy, but Jesus has given us victory in the face of death. So, the key thing for us to remember in this section is that Jacob was insistent that when he died, please bury me in the land of Canaan because I believe that God will be faithful to his word to Abraham that one day our descendants will possess that land. Now, let me just continue on here, and what we're going to find is a state funeral. I mean, I told you Jacob was an important guy. He gets a state funeral. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his household, in all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Jacob, his brothers and his brother's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great lament and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. What this is, is a state funeral. You notice they mourned for 70 days, we saw in the last section. You need to know that 70 days of mourning in Egypt is a big deal. When a pharaoh died in office, the official days of mourning was 72. So this is like a touch bit short of the number of days of mourning of pharaoh himself. And notice, everybody who is somebody in Egypt is part of this funeral. All the elders, every single person. In fact, um, you also have Jacob's kids and their kids and their families are part of the funeral, of course. 
In fact, they all go to the promised land to bury him. The only people who don't go are the kids and the flocks. So this is the original left, this is the original Home Alone movie. Because the kids are all left, what? Home Alone. So we don't know what exactly happened when they got back. The other thing to realize is there is a full military um, unit that is included with them, a military escort for part of the funeral. Now it says this, they ended up going to the fleshing, threshing floor of a tad, and they stayed there for seven more days of mourning. What most likely happened is all the Egyptians stayed at the threshing floor of Atad while Joseph and his brothers went that last final distance to the cave at Machpelah and there buried their father. Now you're probably wondering, interesting details, but like what possible spiritual good could we ever get out of this? Here's where it's interesting. There is some real fun stuff in the details. I wish I was able to find a really good map. I just didn't have a chance to find it this week. I was going to show it to you up here. But it says that they went to the threshing floor of Atad, which means they took not a direct route into the promised land, but they took sort of a circuitous route around the outside of the promised land, east of the Jordan River. Now, why did they take this sort of circuitous, long route to get there? We don't know exactly. People have a lot of different theories. But here is where it's interesting. A little less than 400 years later, in the book of Exodus, when God frees His people and He brings them out of Egypt and He leads them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, he doesn't take the direct, shortest route to the promised land. He takes them through the wilderness, and he follows this exact same route as Jacob's funeral procession. Now, put yourself in the shoes of those people that were coming out of the exodus in Egypt. You know, they start to leave Egypt, and all of a sudden the cloud goes, veers off to the side, and they're going the long route, and they're all scratching their heads. You know, I thought we are taking the short route there. Doesn't God know what He's doing? And after they've been talking about that for a while, all of a sudden somebody puts the pieces together. Hey, this is the same route that was followed less than 400 years before on Jacob's funeral procession. God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that one day his descendants would be brought back to the promised land. And here we are. This is the day we're going the exact same way that Jacob went years before. Now, think about this. All of a sudden, for one moment, they realize that God is large and in charge. God has a plan and God is carrying it out. He's keeping His promises. But while they were in Exodus, or excuse me, while they were in Egypt, weren't there all those times where they wondered where God was? Those times when they heard the crack of the slave's master's whip? Those times when they were forced to throw their baby sons into the Nile River? Those times when they said, God, where are you? thought you had a plan for our life. 
thought you were going to promise to bring us out of this terrible forced existence into the promised land. And in that moment, as they left Egypt, and the cloud took them on the same route of Jacob's funeral, the curtain pulled back for a brief moment. And they saw that God does have a plan. And God is large and in charge. And He's got it all under control. Now, folks, isn't that so applicable to us? We go through life, and a lot of times we're saying, God, I've asked for your help. I've called out to you in prayer, and yet you don't seem to take away the troubles. You don't seem to take away the difficulties. I'm still struggling financially. I'm still struggling in my marriage. You don't seem to, to help me and make it through. And then every once in a while, God pulls back the curtain, and we caps a glimpse that He's got a master plan, and He knows exactly what He's doing, and He's keeping His promise, and He is faithful to His word. That's exactly what we have here. That's the story of faithfulness and dying. Jacob died in trust that God would keep his words. Now let's look at faithfulness in living. Joseph and the brothers. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. Now that uh, Jacob the father was gone, the other brothers were in sheer terror Terror that Joseph, who is the second most powerful person on the planet, would finally get even with them for all of the evil they had done to him. They were just scared stiff. In fact, they made up a lie, saying their father had asked for their forgiveness. They offered to become his servants because they, he had sold them as a servant. See, what happened is, the brothers could not believe that they were forgiven. They just could not believe that after all of the bad stuff that they had done to Joseph, that Joseph literally let it go. He said, how could you, Joseph, ever forgive us after all of the evil and all of the mean things we did to you? The book of Psalms describes how Joseph was in tears and essentially what was going on, his brothers were laughing at him as they sold him off into slavery. Goodbye. I hope you enjoy your life. Could you imagine how deeply 
that wounded Joseph, how deeply that embedded into the hearts and minds of the brothers. And I thought about it for a moment. You know, it's not just the brothers who struggled to believe that they were forgiven, but aren't we just the same way? Don't we also struggle to believe that we're forgiven? We know that the Bible says that Jesus Christ has fully forgiven us of our sins. Then we ask Him to forgive us of our sins. He separated us, separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. But then we have this constant lingering sense of guilt. God, you didn't really forgive me for all of this. And then when a difficulty or trial comes into our life, what is the first thing we think? That God is punishing us. That God is giving us what we deserve. The Bible says it's not true, that God has completely forgiven us. And He has put it all behind us. Just like Joseph put it all behind him. The million dollar question is this. How could Joseph do this? How could Joseph forgive his brothers after all of the hurt they did to them? How could he move beyond this and not seek revenge and be consumed with doing this? Because this is not like JV offense. This is major varsity, big time, state finals level offense. And if you have been alive for a while, this same kind of thing will happen to you. Maybe it's your spouse, the one that you have trusted your life with, who betrays you and who hurts you and wounds you deeply. How do you move beyond this and forgive them? Maybe it's someone at church you considered a brother or a sister in Christ that you have shared with them on an intimate level and a personal level, and they have betrayed you and betrayed your confidence. How do you ever forgive them and move on? Maybe it's at work, your coworker that you have worked side by side with in the corporate world is a cutthroat and betrays you. How do you move beyond this, the kind of level of hurts that Joseph has experienced, that each one of us will experience? The text has the answer for us. And this is what it says. How do I forgive people that hurt me? The first thing we find is this. Number one, we trust justice into God's hands. Genesis 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear for am I in the place of God? He is one of the most powerful people on the planet. He could be like God and get whatever vengeance he wants on them. But here's the thing. Joseph knows it is not his job to take personal vengeance on someone that hurt him. He leaves personal vengeance in God's hands. Look what the Scriptures say in Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never, never, ever, ever avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We never, ever, ever seek to get even with somebody who has hurt us Deeply. I know what some of you will say. You'll say, well, 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 that's not fair. I mean, they're going to get away with it. 
but I thought we were living by faith. Faith that God will take care of vengeance. It's not our job to take care of vengeance. This is living by faith. A couple other things to tell you. Number one, one of the reasons we don't take revenge is we never know the whole story, do we? The truth is, have you ever had this kind of deal where you somebody just comes up to you and out of the clear blue is just rude and mean and nasty, and you're like, man, I just want to haul off and let you have it. And then you find out later in the day that they just discovered that their spouse was diagnosed with cancer. And all of a sudden, all your anger is transformed from empathy. It transformed to empathy, excuse me, because you didn't have the rest of the story. Leave vengeance in God's hands. The other thing is this. God's justice is always the perfect response. It's always the perfect response. When somebody hurts us and we choose to want to take revenge on them, do they usually say, oh, that's perfect, now we're even? No. They say, how could you do this to me? That was so unfair. And then they want to escalate it and do something even meaner to you. And then you want to escalate it and do something even meaner to them. But see, God knows all the details. He will take care of vengeance. It'll be just. It'll be the perfect fit. And you know what? Nobody can take revenge on God. They can take revenge on you. So the first thing we learn is this. How do we forgive people that hurt us? We leave vengeance in God's hand by faith that He will take care of it. Number two, we trust in God's sovereignty to be able to bring good out of evil. That's the, one of the key verses here. Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. Here's what you need to understand. No matter what sin or evil is done to you, it cannot thwart God's good purposes for you. No matter what sin or evil is done to you, it cannot thwart God's good purposes for you. Is sin and evil bad and wicked? Yes, totally. But God takes it, incorporates it into his plan, and does something good. Job's brothers selling him into slavery was evil. It was wrong, but God incorporated it to make it the very means by which Joseph would go to Egypt to save many lives, including that of the brothers who betrayed him. Mrs. Potiphar falsely accuses him of rape. He ends up in a dungeon, suffering for a crime he didn't commit. But God incorporates it uses him to meet the cupbearer and be the very means by which he was set up to move from the dungeon room to the throne room in one single day. What this means is as a Christian, when you go through life and evil is done to you, you do not lose hope. Because God specializes in taking evil circumstances that are done to us and transforming them into things that are good. Evil cannot thwart God's purposes. And Joseph is not the only example of this, but an even greater example of this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is perfect, 
the one who was holy, the one who is God in the flesh, who never did any evil whatsoever, was falsely accused, was beaten. He was beaten to the point where he wasn't even recognizable, it says, as a human being. He was then crucified on a cross. It was the greatest travesty of justice ever to take place in the history of the world. Incredible evil done against him, but God transforms it into incredible good to be the very means by which he saved our lives from sin. Now here is my thought for you. If God could take the great evil that was done against Joseph and transform it into good for the savings of millions of lives, if God could take the great evil that was done against Jesus and transform it into the good to the saving of billions of lives for all eternity, cannot God take the evil that has been done to you and me and transform it into something good through our lives? That's what He specializes in doing. So we don't ever lose hope, no matter what we face. Look what the Scriptures say. Romans 8, 28, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And then in verses 31 and 32 of the 8th chapter of Romans, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, I mean, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If God has given you His own Son, won't He take care of you? So, what do we do when someone hurts us deeply? Number one, we trust vengeance into God's hands by faith that He will take care of it. I do not have to get even. God will do a better job. Number two, we live in faith that God can bring incredible good in the face of incredible evil. He's done that with Joseph. He did that with Jesus. He will do it with you and me. Number three, what we do after someone has hurt us deeply is we go out of our way to return good for evil. Joseph sought to continue providing and caring for the lives of his brothers and his family. They had sinned against him, but he responded by doing good for them. Isn't this what it says in Scripture? Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Or Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This reminds me of the quote from the Untouchables movie. You remember this one? If I can get this right. He says something like this. He says, that they pull out a knife, you pull out a gun. They send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue. I'm like, no. It's not biblical to try and get even. The biblical thing we're told to do is when someone hurts us, becomes an enemy against us, we go out of our way to bless them. It doesn't say we go out of our way to ignore them. It doesn't say we go out of our way to avoid them. It says we go out of our way to do 
good for them. They do us evil. We return good, not avoidance. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And I know that some of you right now are in some really tough situations. Some of you are in a position where people have done some evil, mean, difficult things to you in your life. And I'm going to challenge you this morning. Be men and women who live by faith. In faith, leave vengeance in God's hands. In faith, don't lose hope. Believe that God can bring incredible good out of evil. And in faith, return good for all the evil they have done to you. That's what Scripture tells us, to be men and women that live by faith. Now, we started with the funeral. Let us end with the funeral. And by the way, I apologize. I forgot to put these last verses in your outline. So, Jeremy, stick them up on the screen. So, Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, Surely, or God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So Joseph lived another 54 years. And he saw his kids and his grandkids. But here's where it gets interesting. He dies and he says, don't put me in a pyramid in Egypt. Put me in a coffin. Now in Hebrew, this is interesting. The word for coffin is the same word for ark. It is a wood shipping container. You know, it's like a FedEx box. Bury me in a FedEx box. Put on the front of it, stamp, send to land of Canaan. Talk about dying in faith. That God will be faithful and eventually bring him and his descendants home to the promised land. That's what Joseph wanted to be said about his death and his burial in a wooden shipping box. And less than 400 years later, when the exodus happens and God's people are led out of Egypt and they find the cloud leading them on the same funeral route that Jacob went on less than 400 years before, they are carrying a wooden box. Jacob's, or excuse me, Joseph's bones are going with them. It's Joseph's funeral procession all the way to the promised land. Now, does God keep His promise? Yes. Remember it started off earlier in the book. God said to Abraham, Surely your descendants will get the promised land. And he died in faith. And Isaac died in faith. Jacob had his bones buried in the promised land in faith. Joseph was buried in a shipping container in faith. 
that someday his descendants would get the promised land? And what happens when you come all the way to the end of the book of Joshua, the book that Roger's been teaching over in Crosswinds University? As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. God kept his word. God kept his promise. And he gave them the promised land. Now, the challenge of the book of Genesis is that in this book, we see men and women who lived and who died with their faith resting in confidence that God's word would eventually prove true. That's the challenge of the book of Genesis for you and for me. That we, too, in our generation, in our time, would be men and women who live and who die, resting our faith in God's word that it would prove to. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God's people looked forward to the coming of the one who would crush the head of Satan. And as Christians, we look back upon him because he has come and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that we would be men and women who live and die, placing our confidence in your words that they would prove true. We think of one of the most famous words in your book, John 3, 16, that for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this morning, we just want to reaffirm that we have placed our faith and our confidence in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the one for whom we live and the one for whom we'll place our trust when we die. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.